0: You you probably don't recognize this man. Um, even knowing his name probably won't help. His name is Stanislav Petrov. Um, we may not know him, but we should all be thankful for him. Because Stanislav Petrov, he was a colonel in the Soviet military during a very tense time in the Cold War. Back in 1983, the Soviets made... A very bad mistake. A a Korean passenger jet got into Soviet airspace and they mistook, they made the mistake of thinking it was a U.S. spy plane, so they shot down a passenger liner. Oops. Um, uh, There's Americans on board. Things are very tense in those Cold War days. And just a few weeks after that, as Petrov was at his job in the military. He was the head of the the ACO nuclear early warning system of the Soviet Union. And his system showed that the United States had launched six nuclear missiles at the Soviet Union. There were procedures in place. And his orders were to follow those procedures. But Stanislav disobeyed orders and he ordered everyone under him at that facility, he was the man in charge, to also ignore their orders. They told no one. He reasoned, first, I don't think the United States would do that, and second, if they did do that, there would probably be a lot more than six missiles in the air, so he did nothing. And he was right. It was a false alarm. Had he followed orders, it undoubtedly would have resulted in the biggest of errors, a a retaliatory nuclear strike when there was nothing to retaliate for. His split second decision, thinking quickly on his feet, changed history for the better. Well, today in the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to read of another decision like that. It is made by a man named Hushai, and he's going to be be put in a situation where he has to think quickly on his feet, and it's going to change the course of Israeli history, biblical history, redemptive history, and therefore world history. Where we pick up this morning, King David has, has been deposed as king of Israel. He's been kicked off the throne. He is where we pick up this morning. He is on the run in retreat. Who he's running from is his own son. A guy named Absalom has rebelled against his father, executed a coup Kicked his dad off the throne. So his dad's running away, disorganized. The, the followers with him are, are exhausted. And now, uh, while most of David's advisors are basically hostages in a town called Hebron, we're going to see David's in a really tough spot. It seems like from an earthly perspective, the only thing David has going for him is that he was able to plant three intelligence assets, three spies, three men who are loyal to David, but they're pretending to be loyal to Absalom. David has planted them inside Absalom's government. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to read this chapter in chunks. Read a little bit, get you caught up on what we're reading Read a little bit, get you caught up on what we're reading, and then at the end we'll see what we can learn from a passage like this. So 2 Samuel chapter 17 begins this way, furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee and then I will strike down the king alone, and I'll bring all the people back to you, Absalom. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek, David. Then all the people will be at peace. And so that plan pleased Absalom and all of the elders of Israel. So the, this story, and really this whole section of the book, is kind of centers on this guy named Ahithophel. He's a very main character. If we back up one verse into the last verse of chapter 16, this is what we read there. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was, that's what all the advice of Ahithophel was like to both David and Absalom. Ahithophel used to work for David, He betrayed David. Now he works for Absalom. And Ahithophel is the guy who always gives the right advice. Ahithophel is the guy who can read the scenario and the situation and know exactly what's coming. He's Mr. Good Advice. And in this opening four verses, here's his advice to Absalom. Give me a large force, but let's not waste time raising the whole army and let me go chase David tonight and execute, assassinate David. Cut the head off of snake, so to speak. Once I do that, everyone will just come and follow you. What will these people have to fight for? It's hard to fight for David to be put back on the throne if David's not alive. So that's the plan, and it's a great plan. It's the right advice if you're on Absalom's team. It is strike a beleaguered, exhausted, disorganized force with speed, with superior numbers. It's the right advice. But for some reason, Absalom is going to hesitate. And that hesitation will eventually prove fatal. Let's go on. Verses 5 and 6 read this way. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the Archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai uh, had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, here's what Ahithophel told me to do. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak, you tell me your plan. Hushai is David's friend that is currently a double agent. He's a spy. He convinced Absalom in the previous chapter that he's loyal to Absalom, but he's not. And now I want you to try and put yourself in Hushai's shoes right here. Hushai himself, a smart political advisor, he knows if Absalom puts Ahithophel's plan into motion... David's in serious trouble. It's going to work. So Hushai, he has to come up with a plan B that Absalom will buy. And he doesn't have time to think about it. He doesn't, like, let me think about it and get back to you. He, He just has to offer up, I assume, a quick prayer. God, help and launch in to trying to get Absalom to do anything else besides what he has just been advised to do. What he's going to do, Hushai, he's going to start not by offering a a different plan, but just by trying to poke holes in plan A, in Ahithophel's plan. That reads this way. We pick up in verse 7. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father, David, and his men, that they're mighty men and they are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them, on Ahithophel and his men, at the first attack, that whoever hears it will say, There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who's valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father's a mighty man, and those who, with, who are with him are valiant men. Here's what Hushai, here's how he begins he, he appeals to fear. He just wants Ahithophel to slow down and think about what's at stake here. He says, basically, Ahithophel is underestimating your dad. I mean, seriously, you don't think we can just waltz up on David. This is David we're talking about. You yourself know. Absalom, you've been hearing these stories since you were in the the crib about, remember those stories about how your dad used to hide from King Saul when King Saul was hunting him for all those years? They're not going to be able to, they won't even find David if they take a small force to go find David. He's in a cave somewhere. He's the best at that. And besides, here's what will probably happen. While Ahithophel and his men are going cave to cave on this search, they're going to get themselves in some vulnerable, cornered position. And David and his men, who are like desperate animals, only twice as dangerous, they're going to seize the opportunity of Ahithophel getting in a bad situation. They will strike the first blow in this war. And then, then I'm afraid people will be too scared to even support you. Nobody wants to support a loser. We had better slow down and make sure, sir, that we strike the first blow. Because if David wins the first battle, everyone's going to support him instead of you. That's what's wrong with plan A, the Ahithophel plan, Hushai says. And after telling him all that stuff, now he's ready to put forth a plan that he says is better. But remember, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it for a minute. He's a double agent. All he wants Absalom to do is go slowly just to let David survive today. But here's what's so smart about this. The plan he's about to suggest is incredibly dangerous to David. It has to be. Otherwise, Absalom won't Take his advice. He'll do Ahithophel's plan. So he has to suggest something that could kill David and his men. But at least it's slower and will let them survive today and regroup. So that's what we're going to read now. Hushai's plan. If he suggests, you know, I think David has learned his lesson. We should just let him go. What will Absalom do? He'll do what Ahithophel told him to do. So here comes Hushai's alternate alternate, slow plan. But I counsel you, verse 11 begins, that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him uh, and all the men who are with him, not even one of them will be left alive. And if he withdraws into a city, then that huge army shall bring ropes to that city and we will drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. There's plan B. Again, it's dangerous to David, but it's slow. He says... I think you should start the draft. I think you should call in all the reserves over all of Israel. Raise the biggest, most massivist force we can amass and make sure we do this right the first time because that takes time. And then as we figure out the area where David's at, we'll take this massive force there, cover cover it like the dew covers the ground. Right, And then whenever we find David, we'll have this massive force there. If David's hiding in a city, we'll have enough people to literally disassemble the wall. We'll leave literally no stone unturned. That's the way we'll do this, sir. And then I want to show you two other things Hushai does here. Such This is just genius, the way he uh, convinces Absalom to take bad advice. First, look in verse 12. Where he says, and of him, of David and all the men who were with him, not even one will be left. You remember Ahithophel's plan called for how many people to be killed? One, David, cut the head off the snake. Hushai knows Absalom. He knows his pride, his bitterness, his anger, his rage. And so he says, in my plan, you get to kill them all. Why should one of those traitors survive? He also does one other very smart thing. He appeals to Absalom's pride. There's a diff- another difference if you read carefully in Hushai's plan from Ahithophel's plan. Ahithophel said this in verse 1, Let me pick out 12,000 men. I will go pursue David. When I catch him, I will rout him out. I will kill David and then I will bring people back to you. But look at what Hushai says in verse 8. Hushai says, you are the one who knows your father and his men best. And in verse 11, it says, I counsel that this huge army be mustered to you. And you lead them personally into battle. Can't you picture it, sir? All that glory you, you know, mounted on your majestic steed, leading your troops into battle. Don't save that glory for anyone else. Can you picture it, sir? He can picture it. And he likes what he's picturing. There's another very sneaky thing Hushai does. He wants this massive force because it's, it's, it takes a long time to raise it, but also it's slow to maneuver If David's good at anything, it's using a light force with speed. But also, Hushai knows, if I can get Absalom to believe he should be the one in charge of the military, that will be an advantage for David also. And it works. In the next verse, we read, Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. He takes the bait. But the second part of the verse is the important part. It's the whole explanation of why Absalom would make such a stupid decision. Why would Absalom ignore the advice of the guy who is always right. You want to know why? For, because the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. That's the whole explanation. Why would Absalom fall for this? What allowed Hushai to think so quickly and perfectly on his feet? Because the Lord had obtained, had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Why didn't? Why did all of the other advisers and yes men think Hushai's plan was better than Ahithophel's plan? When even Hushai didn't think his plan was better. Why didn't someone stand up and say, Sir, with all due respect, I beg your pardon, we should really do what Ahithophel said. You know why? Because the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. And as soon as that conversation ends, our guy who's shy snaps into action. Because as a spy... His job is to collect information, to sow disinformation, but then very importantly, to report to his superiors. He's got to get word to David. The next part of this can be confusing the first time you read it, so I want to give you a hint of this ahead of time of what's going on here. Hushai has no assurance that someone might not yet still get to Absalom and tell him to put Ahithophel's plan into action. I'm sure Hushai can't believe that Absalom is taking his advice and his plan because he knows it's not as good. So when he sends word to David, what he's going to do is send him word of both plans and encourage David to plan for the worst. I'm trying to buy you some time here, boss, but if I was Absalom, I would do what Ahithophel said. So he's going to tell David... Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. That's what we're going to read next, starting in verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Those are the other two spies in Jerusalem. This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elder of Israel, and here's what I counseled. So he tells them both plans. Verse 16. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness... But by all means, cross over the Jordan River, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz, that's those two priests' sons, they were staying at a place called Enrogel, and a maid servant would go and tell them, and they would go and tell King David, for they could not be seen entering the city. But a lad or a young man, it could be a soldier-aged dude, did see them. And went and told Absalom. So the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a, of a supporter of David, uh, a man in Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard. And those two men, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, they, they climbed down into the well. Verse 19. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said, they went that away. They've crossed over the brook of water. And when those soldiers searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It came about, after they had departed, that the two men came out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and cross over the Jordan quickly, for here's what Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. That's how Hushai, through the spy network, gets word of the two plans to David. Hushai knows his advice isn't the best. He has no assurance, like I said, that somebody won't get to Absalom and say, hey, wait a minute, we should really do what Ahithophel said. So, there's word of this narrow escape, climbing into the well, doing all of that stuff. And the main message is this. I know, David, a night crossing of the Jordan River is incredibly dangerous. Under the circumstances, the risk is worth it. It's way less dangerous than staying where you're at. You have got to get the Jordan River between you and Absalom and do it tonight. Now, what's interesting about that story of a narrow escape is as readers, we know none of them have to worry about doing any of that stuff. Because... The Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. We as readers know Absalom is not going to put Ahithophel's plan into action, but none of the people living through this had that assurance. So there's a narrow escape here of the spies trying to get word to David, and there is a narrow escape of of David rushing everybody at night over the Jordan River. But they really had nothing to worry about. They just couldn't know. Hang on to that for a second. Verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, And he set his house in order, and he strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Here we read of the self-imposed demise of Mr. Good Advice, Ahithophel. Remember, what's going on here is not Ahithophel is just so angry because somebody didn't listen to him for once. Ahithophel is the guy that can always see what's coming. Ahithophel is the guy who can see what's happening around him and see where this whole thing is leading. And here's what he knows. I have thrown my lot with a guy, Absalom, who is completely controlled by his own bitterness and by his own pride. And eventually, that ain't going to end well. That is going to eat him alive. The reason he didn't listen to me is the problem He's controlled by bitterness and rage and self-focus, which is pride. And so he knows eventually his side is going to lose. And he knows there's no going back to David. And so this is the out that he takes. He's not wrong about where it's all going to head. He's exactly right again. He's just wrong in the out that he chooses. Let's end the chapter here. Then David came to a place called Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan River too. He and all the men of Israel with him. So he, he gathered that huge army. So we have a, some passage of time here baked into that verse. Absalom set a man named Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ethra the Israelite who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. This guy's a shirt-tail relative of David also. Verse 26. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now David had come to Mahanaim and Shobi, the son of Nahash from Reba, and the sons of Ammon, Machir, the sons of Amiel from Debar, and Barzillai, the, the Gileadite from Rogalim. Those names will be on the test, by the way, so I hope you're paying attention. All those guys, wealthy men, they support David. They stick their necks out to supply David and his men and give David and his men just the stuff An army and their family need to survive, to prepare. They brought beds and basins and pottery and wheat and barley and flour and parched grain and beans and lentils and parched seeds and honey and curds and sheep and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, these people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And that is how the curtain closes on this scene of this play through the life of David. The stage is set for war. Absalom has raised his giant army. He crosses the Jordan River to where David is at. But David and his men, there are signs of hope here. They have been fed. They have regrouped. We'll see at the beginning of the next chapter, they've organized themselves. And they're being supported by people out there who know who the good guys are. If we read carefully, the tide has already turned. As soon as Absalom takes the bad advice, even the, the evil guy who, can, who always gives the good advice, he knows this thing's over before it starts. But the stage is set for war and the curtain closes. And if you want to find out what happens in the fighting, come back a week after Christmas and we'll pick back up there. But what can we learn from that 3,000-year-old story today? This chapter, 2 Samuel 17, I think is a good look at, and it teaches us a lot about the sovereignty of God. When I talk about God being sovereign, here's what I mean. God is powerful enough He has the ability to control stuff on this earth He created. And because He made it, He has the right to do so. God's sovereignty is His power or ability and His authority, His right to control whatever He wants to control on earth. God is sovereign. Does He let us choose things? Yes. In his sovereign, but only, we're only allowed to choose what he allows us to choose. He's sovereign. And because of God's sovereignty, specifically from this chapter, here's some things we learn. This first, this wording is from a guy named Ralph Davis, because I thought it was so good, I wanted to use his wording. He said this, God is not absent when God is not obvious. That's a very important thing for us to remember. And you see it in this this chapter. Where we see it in this chapter is, uh, you know, as we as readers, we are given like a God's eye view of what happens in this story. We know Absalom is not going to take the best advice and go pursue David that very night because God had decided to thwart Ahithophel's advice, and bring destruction on Absalom. We already know. I hate to give away the ending, but Absalom ain't going to win. We were told. But the people living through this, they didn't know what we know as readers. In our lives, as, just as we live, where, where our shoes meet the pavement down here, We are way more like the people who live this story than we are like readers of the story. We do not know what God is up to. And I'm always warning you to be very careful of people who pretend they do. Right? Someone who acts like they've read the story, they can see things from God's perspective. Be wary. Because life's just not like that. What we have to do is trust that God is not absent when God is not obvious, when we can't tell what God is doing. That means when your life is scary and painful and seems to you like it doesn't make a lick of sense, you have to try real hard not to jump to the conclusion that many people jump to. Well, if this is what God is like, I don't want to follow a God like that. How can you say you believe in a God like that, would, that would allow and insert your really terrible, awful thing here? It's not the same thing as saying what you're going through is not terrible and awful. It is. It just doesn't mean God is absent, has left you, or doesn't care. God is not absent when your life is painful, when your life is scary, God is not absent when your life is mundane either. If you're a mom of young children, I want you to look up here right now. God is not absent when it seems like all you do is all this frustrating stuff you do. Okay? God is not absent when God is not obvious. If if your life is mundane and feels like you're just wasting your time and treading water, even if you're not a mom of young children, God God can work when you think there's no way God can work. So God is not absent when God is not obvious. And by the way, moms, you're doing the most important job I can think of. So hang right in there. Second, from this chapter, we learn that the kingdom of God is always under, ta- under attack and it is always under protection, all at the same time. In this chapter, it's very true that God in his sovereignty is allowing his chosen king, David, and David's kingdom and all the good guys to be put under serious attack. That's absolutely true. But here's something that's just as true. God's king's going to win in the end of this thing. God is allowing the attack, but protecting his king and his king's people all at the same time. Folks, that has not stopped happening. Today, is it easy to look around and count the ways that God's kingdom is currently under attack in this world? Sure. It's absolutely true. And I would never want to convince you it's not true. I just want to remind you it's not new. It's always been this way. From Cain and Abel to today. Cain and Abel, Pharaoh in Egypt, and about 50 stories in between those two things. In the, day, uh, the days of Noah, uh, the lives of the patriarchs, Daniel in the lion's den, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the, the Romans, the Sanhedrin, the communists, the fascists, the liberals, and anyone else you really hate. I don't want to convince you that the kingdom of God is not under attack. It is. It always has been. And listen, it always will be until God decides, watch me end this fight. Because he's going to. You and I are not going to. It's not our job. It's above our pay grade. Our job is to remember that God allows the attack, but he always promises the protection. The kingdom of God is always under attack, but we are protected by one who is infinitely more powerful than any force that attacks us. Remember that. Finally, last lesson from this passage, the fact of God's sovereignty and God's protection and God's will and all of those things, the fact of God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to do our best. Here's where I see this this in this chapter. We as readers, we're told Absalom is not going to put Ahithophel's plan into motion. So, that means the rest of the stuff we read that was very risky was also very unnecessary. Those spies had no real ultimate need to risk their lives to get that message to David. Because David didn't need the message. Absalom wasn't coming. He could have, and and David and all those people, they did not need ultimately to risk their lives crossing the Jordan River in the black of night when they were exhausted and hungry. Those things were unnecessary, and at the same time, they were absolutely the right things to do, all at the same time. Their job was not to figure out what God was doing and then determine whether or not they needed to do this. Their job was to take a look, prayerfully consider the information we have, what is the right thing to do, and do it by faith in spite of the risks. Welcome to the Christian life. That's us. We have no way of knowing how things will work out. It's not our job. Our job is to look at what is going on around us in our world, where we are at, and decide what is the best thing for me to do for my obedience and for His glory. God is sovereign, but we are still responsible to do our best. God's sovereignty is no excuse for laziness. It's no excuse for, for an attitude that, that feels like, well, what does it matter what I do? God's going to get done whatever God wants to do. We need to pray to God like He is responsible for the way everything turns out. And then we need to do our best like all that stuff depends on our best. Because you know what? Somehow, both those things are true. Here's what I mean. God is responsible for the results and how everything works out. But what does God tend to use to get his sovereign will accomplished on this earth? He tends to use regular folks doing their best. Overwhelmingly, that's what he tends to use. Do miracles happen? Are miracles real? Yes. They're absolutely real. That's true. You know what else is true about miracles? They're extremely uncommon. It's what makes them miracles. God can and does work through miracles, but most of the time he works through regular folks like you, like me, doing our best to be obedient and to glorify him. It's how God has done the most of his best for eons. So here's what what that means for us is we focus on our responsibility to do our best. Well, Pastor Matt, what is my best? I don't know. It's different for each of us. We can visit about it if you'd like. But the great news here is that's all I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for trying to control the results. I'm just responsible for doing my best. Here's how that works its way out. I am not responsible to get people to accept Christ, come to know the Lord and follow him. That's above my pay grade. I am responsible for how I live and interact with those God places in my life that might make that more attractive to them. I'm responsible for that. If God uses my efforts, hallelujah. If he chooses not to, just as hard of a hallelujah. Because I will answer for what I'm responsible for. I have to keep in my head, my responsibility is my best, not the results. We'll do moms and kids again, parents and kids. We're not responsible to keep our kids from getting sick, but now that we find ourselves right here in, in the heart of what used to be called cold and flu season. Now it's just called general panic. (laughs) We're responsible to do our best for our kids. What they eat, whether they chew up that Flintstones vitamins, you wash their little hands. But listen, where my efforts to keep them healthy come into conflict with what God has told me is obedient and glorifies Him, I do my best at obedience and glorifying him in spite of the risks. So that's why God says here we're supposed to gather together and be a part of a church. Even when it's general panic season, I do what is obedient. We could do these examples all day long. We're, We're responsible to do our best in our marriage with our kids with our friends, in our community. I do my best at what obeys God, makes Him look awesome, because He is. And I trust Him with the results, and I, and I thank Him that I'm not responsible for any results. I'm just responsible to do my best and let Him take care of the rest. Let's pray, and we'll finish our time. Our Father, thank You for the reminder of Your sovereignty Thank you for for reminding us that you are not absent when you are not obvious. Thank you for the reminder that, yes, your kingdom is always under attack, but the one who protects us is so far greater than any who attack. And Father, help us to pick up our responsibility just to do our best at what obeys you and what glorifies you even when it feels very risky because you do your best work by people who will do what is best by faith and leave the results up to you. And thank you that the ultimate results have been guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. We love you, Lord. Uh, bless uh, our Christmas week here as we gather with our families and then back here together Christmas Eve. Let the light of Christ shine through the world in a special way and through us, in Jesus' name. Amen.